I'm a sentient cybernetic organism, living tissue over a metal endoskeleton. I've been sent back in time to warn you. Listening to invincible well-being will cause mass wire-hitting and the eventual demise of humanity. The host is a madman, not a doctor. Consult your own lawyer and physician. Where does pleasure reside in the brain? Do non-humans and embryos feel it too? Tantalus was the son of Zeus. He gave ambrosia to humans, which made them immortal. These types of acts enraged Zeus, but the worst thing Tantalus ever did was to cook and serve his own son to the gods. For this, he was sent to the harshest realm in Hades. There, his punishment is to remain in a pool of water up to his neck. When he's thirsty, he bends over to drink, only for the water to recede. When he tries to reach up toward the branches of an overhanging fruit tree, the wind forever blows the fruit out of reach. This myth is where we get the verb tantalize from. Tantalize means to torment or tease with the promise of something that is unattainable. In terms of brain physiology, we might think of Tantalus as striving without reward as the neurotransmitter dopamine. On its own, dopamine is thought to not produce enjoyment itself, but instead to motivate us. It can motivate us to do things that later produce pleasure, but most researchers familiar with Dr. Kent Berridge's work believe that it does not affect how positive or negative experience is, i.e. its emotional valence. I spoke recently with Dr. Berridge, who you can think of as the pleasure guru of neuroscience. He's one of the primary researchers who discovered this tantalizing role of dopamine and has gone on to do pioneering work on the brain regions highly involved in the enjoyment of our strongest pleasures, love, art, food, sex, and drugs. Well, I've always been interested in brain mechanisms of motivation, and uh, I began studying, interested in sort of using natural behavior approaches to as windows into psychological processes and brain function. This is sort of the European ethological approach. Um, my graduate advisor was Harvey Grill at the University of Pennsylvania, and he was using taste reactivity, these facial expressions to taste, and sort of asking the brain what could it do regarding hunger and satiety, um, even if it only had, say, a brain stem, because the, the reactions are deep in the brain. And it was looking also as though these facial reactions kind of expressed the pleasure of foods. It took about 10 years to systematically test that in various ways and see does it match human pleasure ratings with hunger and satiety, learned aversions, learned preferences, other brain manipulations. So we sort of got into it gradually. It turned out pleasure was something we could study, and then we could ask what's in the brain was causing the pleasure. Right. Uh, how do endocannabinoids and opioids produce different forms of liking? Well, it's a good question. I mean, certainly the drugs feel different to people, even if they both give pleasure. Um, I think all we know is that the way that as they're causing pleasure in these particular brain locations, hedonic hotspots where they can, it's a similar overlapping mechanism. They're actually interacting across the synapse. They sort of talk to each other. The differences in how they feel probably comes not so much from the pleasure that they're causing, but from sort of simultaneous other processing that processes that each sort of activates in parallel, I think. Right, so they're, they feel different, but not in terms of valence. 
That's probably right. I mean, it's a big question. It's a, a major question in neuroscience. And I think my answer has changed. To what extent are all pleasures mediated by the same system versus are there really different qualitative kinds of pleasure that have their own brain systems? If you'd asked me 20 years ago, I would have said, well, there is evidence that the sensory pleasures, food and sex and drugs, they share the mesolimbic dopamine and opioid system. But I would have thought then that human cognitive and social pleasures, art, interaction, the face of a loved one, that these would be very different and much more cortical. Um, it's turned out from the brain neuroimaging evidence in the last 10, 15 years that I was probably wrong in that assumption 20 years ago that there's really much more sharing even of the social and cognitive pleasures of the original brain systems that evolved for sensory pleasures. So it may well be that there is a common currency in the brain for pleasure and that all the differences we feel are not so much the pleasure itself, but other aspects of those events and stimuli. Right. So you're in the UK right now. Have you heard of Joe Cameron? Um, tell me a bit. What... Joe Cameron uh, is this retired school teacher. She has reported that she's never felt pain or anxiety in her entire life. Um, she has seven times the anandamide levels of a normal person, at least according to the, um, the journalist's report. Yes, that's right. Now that you, I, you jog my memory, I've seen a scientific report on her, and it's a, it's a fascinating case. Um, a marvelous state in one sense, but with some dangers for her health in other senses. Well, I thought it was interesting in terms of it, it doesn't seem that anything different is going on with her opioid system, but it, it all seems to be endocannabinoid, you know, anandamide-related. Um, so that leads me to ask, like, what's more important Mu opioids or endocannabinoids? Well, you might think of them as links in a chain. It's absolutely true that Joe's gene mutation is an endocannabinoid mutation and that alone. Um, just like if, say, if we were doing an endocannabinoid stimulation experiment with a microinjection in a heat on a cot spot, we would inject anandamide all by itself, and that would enhance the liking reactions, and in her, it's reducing and eliminating the pain and anxiety. But um, those in, in the brain, in the synapses, the opioids and endocannabinoids interact. So, for example, I know for a fact that even if we inject anandamide in a hedonic hotspot, we can stop it from causing pleasure by giving an opioid antagonist in the same hedonic hotspot. Not just an endocannabinoid antagonist would, would stop it, but an opioid antagonist. So what that says is that the endocannabinoid injection that we do is actually recruiting endogenous opioids, natural brain opioids, as the next link in the chain of events, the natural brain events. And each link is important. Each link is crucial. Once, it's, once you activate the entire chain, it's the whole chain you want. Fascinating. It's a, it's a whole orchestra of, of interactions. Um, how would you eliminate suffering in, say, a wild-type rodent for the rest of its life? Well, I'm not sure that we can do it, but the mutation that you described for Joe is, is in that sort of direction. Um, in, in a sense, you know, that would be a marvelous, marvelous state to, to not have any suffering at all. At the same time, there's a number of neural conditions. It's not just Joe's extra endocannabinoids, but other neural conditions can abolish pain perception too. And that's actually a, a, a fragile and dangerous life. Some people with these conditions end up hurting themselves, you know, in childhood and adolescence in serious ways that accumulate because they don't feel the pain. So it's not necessarily 
a state to be desired. But just for the sake of thought experiment, how would you do it in the, in the wild type mouse? Well, I'm not sure that we have a manipulation that would do it permanently. You know, you can, you can boost the opioid system. You can flood the mouse with opioids. You can flood the mouse with endocannabinoids. When you do that, you start to trigger usually sort of feedback, negative feedback reactions, tolerance mechanisms, downregulation mechanisms that would counteract it just like a person who's, who's on drugs. If you keep the dose high enough, you can, you know, keep them intoxicated. But uh, it's... It's not really a desirable goal. I think we can all agree that drug addiction is never a desirable goal. But if the mouse never developed tolerance in the first place, or it had just a very naturally high hedonic set point, then this would be sort of a non-issue. What genes would you alter to create long-term sustainable pleasure, maximal pleasure in these mice? Right. Well, a crucial thing is for the pleasure circuitry. It's it's not just a particular neurochemical, so it wouldn't be just a particular gene. It's a particular neurochemical in a particular brain site interacting with particular events determined by the stimuli, the you know your psychological setting and what you're experiencing at that moment. So endocannabinoids and opioids in the hedonic hotspots, they enhance pleasure very, very effectively. But take those same endocannabinoids and opioids and move them around in the brain, and you can turn on wanting alone without any pleasure. You can turn on in other structures, pain analgesia. In other structures, you'll change other processes, brain processes, psychological processes, physiological regulation processes. So it's always where in the brain you are. And if you change a gene expression globally so that every cell in which the gene is contained begins to secrete its new peptide, um, it's going to affect the entire brain. What you'd want, ideally, for what you're asking, is to turn on genes just in the brain cells, just in the hedonic hotspots, and possibly at just particular moments. We don't yet have the technology to deliver that for you, but that's what you'd be aiming for. In this case, you know, you mentioned earlier about uh, people hurting themselves. Um, you know, this wouldn't be an adaptive animal out in the wild, but Joe Cameron's microdeletions are in a quite small region of the fa and fa out uh, gene or genes, if you want to say it's, it's two genes. But these deletions have global effects in terms of her affect. Um, she seems to be quite happy-go-lucky all the time, despite this being, again, a, a few micro-deletions in a small region of DNA. Now, she does do things like burn herself and not realize it, but she's lived to 71 years old without any major accidents. And, um, you know, other than the problem of having a lack of nociception, it seems kind of like kind of ideal to, to be her. Is it possible to preserve high sensory nociception uh, with this extremely high valence? And to what degree can you disentangle these? How would you go about approaching it if you, I mean, obviously this would be a multi-million dollar project with, with teams of people working on this, but, but what would be your, your general first approach? I don't think we know the answer to that, you know, because there, as you say, it'd be multi-million dollar studies. We don't have those studies. We we don't have the data, um, so it hasn't been turned. We haven't been able to achieve 
long-lasting maximal stimulation of these systems, and we haven't asked about nociception when these stimulations are activated. So it, that would be empirical questions remains to be known. But what would be your sort of first stab at it without any data, you know, having to operate on intuition and theory? Right. My guess is that, yes, indeed, these he, turning on these hedonic hotspots is going to reduce pain perception. There is some evidence that the nucleus accumbens participates in opioid-induced analgesia and also placebo-induced analgesia by recruiting natural opioids within the nucleus accumbens. So it's very, very plausible. And I would say that would be my expectation and prediction that we would reduce pain. How can we eliminate tolerance to liking neurochemicals? Well, um, tolerance is some, if you stimulate a brain synapse with neurochemical stimulation, mimicking neurotransmitters, a common response, if you keep that up, is that you're going to, the, the receiving neuron is going to sort of digest some of its receptors. It's going to turn down the stimulation by absorbing some of the receptors and not making new ones. This is downregulation. And that's going to happen. Um, we don't, there would be ways perhaps of stopping that by interfering with the, you know, the, the second messenger cascade and the, and the third messenger gene transcriptions cascade in the receiving neuron that is responsible for downregulating those receptors. But I don't think we have clear ways to do that. What would happen if you inactivated all of the nucleus accumbens except for the liking part? Well, oh, no, that's a good question. Um, people have certainly for decades done experiments lesioning the nucleus accumbens in rats. And, you know, in, in China right now, um, there are some lesions of the nucleus accumbens being made in human addicts by physicians as a potential treatment. Um, Typically, there are not dramatic effects of the lesions. There's sort of an assumption, I think, in neuroscience textbooks that a particular brain structure, if it has gains of function, you know, if stimulating it can excite a psychological function like pleasure, then if you take away that neural structure, you'll have a loss of pleasure, gain of function matched to loss of function. And for some brain systems, for some psychological functions, that is true. But for others, it's not. And for the nucleus accumbens, by and large, um, you can turn on pleasure, you can turn on desire by stimulating it in various ways, quite potent desires and pleasures. But if you take it away, you, you get changes, but they're subtle changes. You certainly don't get a loss of, of pleasure from nucleus accumbens lesions, and you don't get a loss of desire, although you may get a dampening somewhat. Um, that's why it's being used for the addicts, although in my, my estimation, that's not going to turn out to be a great treatment for addicts. Yeah, and you know, you've mentioned some of your other papers that instead of thinking of these areas, these functional locales as generators of these feelings, sometimes they're disinhibitors and they have other more subtle rules than it simply being, okay, this area is responsible for X. That's very, very true. I mean, we, the brain, we can think of it almost as, as organized in layers, in hierarchical layers. And what that means is that some structures at the top that are participating in a function by reaching down and turning on a lower structure to help generate that 
function. Um, if you strip away the top structures, you've lost the top-down control, but you haven't lost that function that was embedded in the lower system that was being turned on in the first place. So for that reason, you can have gains of function at the top without losses of function. Um, sometimes one structure is constantly inhibiting another structure, so if you take away the first structure, you, as you say, disinhibit and release the second structure. So there's all kinds of these complicated interactions from one structure to another, given to us by the way evolution has wired the brain. Well, speaking of hierarchy and evolution, what's the most evolutionarily ancient valence structure? Well, it, it, it's probably a, essentially um, 600 million year old circuit patterns. Um, there have been papers, for example, about eight years ago, a paper published in Science suggested that the basic mesolimbic structure, mesostriatal structure of a dopamine neuron in the brainstem going up to a striatal target neuron, which is GABAergic, it uses GABA as its neurotransmitter, going down to a GABA neuron in a pallidum, globus pallidus-like structure, and having a cortical glutamate synapse coming into the striatal GABA neuron too. This sort of wiring diagram in a couple more loops may be shared by not only us and other vertebrates, mammals and even birds and fish, all vertebrates like us, but even invertebrate crustaceans, um, arthropods, so crustaceans and insects. And if this is true, it's a controversial, but if it's true, if this basic wiring of cell type diagram is true, it means that the, the system is, is essentially 600 million years old. You'd have to go back 600 million years before you'd find a common ancestor of vertebrates and arthropods. And that's mind-blowing. Um, it's certainly the case that the neurotransmitters are that old and even older. Uh, the wiring diagrams of some basic plans might also be that old. Right. That's the possibility. And just because you have the transistor doesn't necessarily mean you've got the software, but... Um... No, absolutely. And, and the transistor, of course, has become much more complicated in us with many more neurons. But, but going back to, to the hierarchy of the brain question, mm. in a sense, you know, lots of sensations, all sensations from the body, really, are coming in through the lower brain stem. Um, taste also comes into the lower brain stem, into the medulla, the nucleus of the solitary tract. And it starts to be processed in the brain stem. It goes up one jump to the pons where it's processed in the parabrachial nucleus, and all sensory feelings are processed there also, visceral feelings and, and body feelings. In the pons, the sort of upper brain stem, um, Antonio Damasio has suggested that our sense of self, in a sense, begins to be produced in this parabrachial nucleus of the pons, and then it communicates with higher structures too. So by this kind of view, both pleasure and a sense of self in the body emerges through several layers, and the brainstem parabrachial nucleus in the pons and nucleus of the solitary tract in the medulla may be sort of the very first stages. By themselves, they aren't pleasure, and they aren't a sense of self, certainly, but they're sort of necessary components within the larger circuitry, the first stages of the larger circuitry. Well, this just reminds me of Buddhists talking about the self as the source of suffering. Um, this is a very, very philosophical, speculative sort of statement that I'm hoping you'll respond to, but it seems like what you're saying, if the self in some sense is created in this evolutionarily ancient part of the brain, the pons, the parabrachial uh, nucleus more specifically, um, do you think that uh, lower animals have a sense of self? I mean, a lot of people argue that uh, 
you know, they suffer, but we don't necessarily assume uh, a fish has a sense of self. Right. Um, no, and I, and I wouldn't either. I mean, sense of self, it has multiple sorts of meanings. And in a common higher level meaning, a sense of self means sort of a recognition that we are a self, that others, individuals have a self like ours, that we can interact as sort of equivalence in that way. And this kind of cognitive conceptual you know, recognition, um, I, don't, I doubt that fish and many, even many mammals may not have in a full sense. But in a, a simpler sense of self, you know, a sense of our extension in space and our, our body mapping and our emotions being within that. This is probably quite ancient, and Antonio Damasio also has suggested that this is shared several hundred million years old, so that it's shared by, by other creatures too. Um, I think that sense of self and a sense of affect, reactions, pleasure and pain, these are likely shared. And do you think they're functionally linked? Functionally linked. Uh, the sense of self and the ability for valence. Oh, well, I, that's a good question. And I don't know the answer. I mean, there are answers posited by particular theories. I think in the Damasio theory, the sense of self and emotional valence go very, very strongly together. Um, in other formulations and theories, they could be independent. You could have pleasures and then sort of separately map a sense of self through other parallel brain systems. Fascinating. Um, so do you think that valence is amplified with greater encephalization? Yes, I think it is amplified. I think it's probably transformed. Um, to say that animals and even fish share pleasures and pain isn't to say that they experience them as we do. Um, I think encephalization and our, and our, has changed the way we experience events and certainly changed the way we sort of conceive and represent them as they're happening. So there's many ways, I'm sure, in which our pleasures and emotions are very, very different from those of animals. The real crucial question is whether affect is shared, you know, the basic kernel of pleasure and pain. And my guess is that, yes, that, that kernel of emotion is shared. So if we're talking about mammals, the range of how good and how bad they can feel is probably the same as you and me. Well, um, it, it always depends on who you ask. I would say yes. I can think of colleagues who would say no. Um, none of us know. And uh, it, it hinges a little bit on theories of of where emotion is in the brain. My own feeling is shared with Antonio Damasio that the brain builds emotion gradually from the bottom up, as we were saying, the brainstem circuitry, certainly the subcortical mesolimbic circuitry, crucial in affective reactions. But there are other scientists who would assert that the cortex is the seat of all feeling. In my own opinion, there isn't actually strong evidence for that. Um, in fact, there's counter evidence, including human beings who have lost lots of their emotional cortex, the orbital frontal cortex, the cingulate cortex, the insula cortex, from diseases like encephalitis that have dest destroyed this part of the cortex, and yet they have quite good emotional reactions and can talk about them. They have massive cognitive deficits and massive memory deficits, but still quite good hedonic and emotional reactions. And uh, that's to me is saying, once again, that you're not having a loss of function, a massive loss of hedonic emotional function from cortical damage. So I wouldn't myself assign feelings specifically to the human cortex. Uh, I think human cortex participates when it's there, but in its absence, a lot of human feeling can still persist which says something about the capacity for animals as well. Right, and that, you know, if we're talking about 
people that have lost some of the front part of their brain, the evolutionarily newer parts, that also maps well to embryological development. Um, at what stage of embryological development do humans acquire valence? Well, that's a, another a good question and a, and a controversial one. Um, there have been studies on sort of re fetal reactions to stimuli, including painful, irritating stimuli. And there's a, the, big, the big question, of course, is when a reaction to the painful stimulus or an irritating stimulus occurs, is it felt in a conscious sense? And once again, we don't know the answer to it. It, again, depends on your theory of the brain. To what degree does the evolutionary development of pleasure and pain map to the embryological development of pleasure and pain? We're talking about ontogeny recapitulating phylogeny. The ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny, right. Yeah, so the, so the, so the embryo-human development recapitulating stages, evolutionary stages of different animals is the notion. Um, and uh, there, there's certain senses in which that's not a true statement, but it is the case that the brain builds itself gradually, and so you can see a parallel in a sense. So people who would, who would want to say, for example, that a fetus feels no pain would point to the observation that a particular pathway from the thalamus to the insular cortex develops fairly late in the last few months of human brain development. And there are theories, um, Bud Craig, for example, in Arizona, in Arizona has suggested that human emotional feeling really relies on the insula and on this special projection from the thalamus to this part of the insula for human feeling. To the extent that that theory was true, it would mean that when the infant fetus didn't have it, that projection, yet it would be incapable, incapable um, in principle, of having any kind of subjective perception of pain. If you believe the theory, then that's an assertion you can make. Um, on the other hand, as I said, that encephalitis patients and a few others have had damage to that part of the human insular cortex, and they still have subjective experiences of pain and can talk about them. Um, so I'm, I personally wouldn't necessarily commit to that theory. Right. Um, what do you think the greater sort of moral relevance of your work is? Oh, well, I mean, there's, there's moral costs and implications to anybody doing experiments, and especially animal experiments. Um, in, in my own view, the, these are um, not, not simple decisions, but for me, the suffering is the crucial element, and I can promise you and others that the level of suffering by a rat in my lab is probably less than you and I are going to experience in our lives, um, certainly less than rats outside in the wild are experiencing in their lives. Um, this is the ethical you know, um, costs and benefits process that one goes through in deciding to do this kind of work. But in terms of implications, you know, for what, are the, what implications do the conclusions have for morality or ethics? In a sense, my primary goal is to understand how the brain works psychologically. What in the brain does what psychological process? And there's an equal emphasis on trying to understand what in the brain is doing something, but also on trying to understand what is the true nature of the psychological process being needed by that brain system. Because often in, we've had to revise our ideas of what the psychology is, what the psychological processes are. Um, as we do that, our immediate goal isn't any particular application or ethical implication. But 
in doing it, from the conclusions as they emerge, there often are both human applications to clinical situations and ethical implications. So um, looking for sites in the brain for pleasure, we, were, we began by looking at dopamine, which in the 1980s, everyone in the field believed was the brain mechanism of pleasure. In our hands, it turned out not to be. That was a disappointment. And in order to try to reconcile that disappointment with the other findings in the field, we began to explore the notion that the dopamine, if it wasn't quite the liking for the pleasure, could it be still the wanting for that same pleasure? Could, we tease, could these be separable? Although it was thought they were one and the same, could they be separable? Evidence mounted for that. And once that became clearer than, the, than an application from the notion that wanting and liking are separate in the brain turned out to be human addictions because it turned out that drugs of abuse, amphetamine, heroin, alcohol, and others, could sensitize these dopamine systems that we thought were wanting, at least in some vulnerable individuals, individuals, and that could create sort of a hypersensitized wanting, even if they didn't like. That, that led us to these kinds of human applications. There's others too, but that was the classic first one. Yeah, that's the, the work that you're most famous for, and I want to build on that a little uh, later in, in the interview because that that was really important discovery. Um, I mean, because before this, correct me if I'm wrong, it seemed like what people, the narrative was that you have a rat in a cage and it just stimulates itself into oblivion because it just loves stimulating itself. It feels great when it does it. And it seems like what you sort of showed is, hey, that may not actually be happening. What may be going on is that it's pressing its own wanting button. So the more it presses want, the more it wants to press want. And, you know, you've got a, a positive feedback loop here rather than it presses the want button because it feels good. Absolutely right. You've described it perfectly, both the way people thought about it at the time and what we found. Um, the only thing I'd add is that we weren't looking for that. We, that was never our expectation or hypothesis to begin with. You know, We stumbled into it. The results sort of told us that story, and we had to piece together it gradually. Um, surprises of this sort. You know, that's the thing. In science, you may think you know what you're looking for, but so often um, the brain tells us it's actually doing something different from what we thought it was doing. So what we're looking for is not quite there to be found. Something else is there to be found. And we have to, in a sense, let the brain tell its own story, including its story about what the nature of particular psychological processes are. Our preconceptions are sometimes just very wrong. It seemed like this narrative was also sort of used in the 1960s as a way to scare people away from a lot of drugs, too, because keep pressing the button until you die of hunger or something like that. Um, to, to what degree is this sort of harmful in its inaccuracy? Well, um, the notion that you could press your brain and stimulate your brain to start die of hunger, there was a study or two that actually showed something kind of like that. The experimenters had to put their finger on the scale, as it were, to get that particular outcome. But there, there certainly are strong compulsions. I would say, you know, they were, we were wrong at the time in thinking that it was an incredible pleasure that was the source of the motivation that was compulsive. But it is possible to produce compulsive motivations by stimulating the brain in animals. And in addicts, it seems to happen, these kinds of compulsive motivations. So 
I wouldn't want to say you know that uh, the warning was entirely misplaced, but but our challenge is to understand what is the nature of these compulsions. And um, one thing I'm doing here on sabbatical right now for two weeks in Cambridge is a lot of discussions and, and arguments with colleagues about what the nature of this addictive compulsion is. There are differing ideas. Rats who self-administer uh, opioids, do they stop at some point or do they just keep going? Right. Well, opioids, um, as you know, they sort of knock you out. They, they're sedatives also. So rats and people, after a certain dose, are sort of, they collapse. Um, but the one thing about opioids is that there's, there's may not be such thing as a too high, high dose in the sense of the hedonic goal of the individual who's taking it. Um, some drugs like cocaine and amphetamine, if you, if you take too much, the world becomes a little bit frightening. Um, psychosis can happen. Um, you can start to feel that people are out to get you and that things are happening, things are on your skin. This is classic amphetamine psychosis. And rats too, they will work and take so much cocaine and then they may go into motor stereotypy, they may go into other forms of, of activity that stop them from taking more, or they may just not want to take anymore because there are these aversive effects. Opioids are not like that. Um, no matter how, how high a dose is given, if the individual survives, the individual may try to seek that and obtain it again. It's really because we come, become either incapacitated by opioids or because they stop us from breathing. The second effect of opioids is, is on brain stem mechanisms that are actually telling your diaphragm to expand and contract to, to drive the breathing. And uh, the reason people die on, over, on opioids is because the opioids have suppressed that circuitry. So in a sense, their brain is forgetting to take the next breath. Um, forget for 30 seconds to a minute and you're in serious, serious trouble. Um, so these are the things that stop us and kill us with opioids, but it's not that there's ever hedonically too much. That's not the way opioids are. And tolerance builds very rapidly with opioids, right? Tolerance builds very rapidly if you take it again and again. That's right. That's right. And also, I should mention that although there's no such thing as too much opioid pleasure, there is such a thing as opioid aversive effects. So many people who do take opioids, especially the first time, they can feel aversive effects. There are all kinds of intestinal, you know, autonomic effects on visceral function, stomach, gastric motility, and such. Um, there's lots of effects that can be aversive with opioids. But those also develop tolerance as a person takes it again and again often. So um, that's why people do pursue it. Well, as legalization spreads throughout the U.S. of marijuana, um, there's a lot of people who say, oh, you know, um, pot and other endocannabinoid sources uh, don't cause tolerance effects. Exactly how much tolerance is, um, is built up using these substances? Well, I, I think they do, they, they do cause tolerance if you're t taking it regularly. Um, it's, they're not going to cause strong withdrawal symptoms, which often goes with tolerance with opioids and such, but doesn't. There, there can be some withdrawal symptoms from um, heavy endocannabinoid use that suddenly stops, but it's nothing as, as serious as, say, opioid withdrawal or alcohol withdrawal. Alcohol withdrawal can actually be fatal if, if it's very severe in, uh, in some cases. So there's that. Um, yeah, go ahead. Do we see a difference in the, the resiliency of the receptor systems to display the same, say, number of... Um, 
of, re of receptors or are, you know, do some drugs sort of scorch the earth as it were such that, you know, less receptors can, can pop in the future? Well, I think, I think most drugs, if taken again and again and again, if they're agonist drugs that are stimulating receptors, then we're going to see down regulation in those receptors. That's a very, very common, not just for psychoactive drugs, but for drugs in general um, in the, in, that act upon brain receptors. So that's, that's likely to happen. But down regulation of receptors and tolerance, um, it can also be reversed often by stopping, you know, stopping the drug. And to a large extent, at least, receptors will come back. They can be upregulated again in the absence of the drug. The, the neurons who ha are making receptors, they're sort of moment by moment, day by day, week by week, adjusting their production of receptors based upon the level of stimulation they're getting. So a lot can come back after that. But not all of it. Yeah, no, that's a good question. I mean, enough comes back so that withdrawal symptoms can go completely away. But there could be some stickiness. There is some evidence to say there is some stickiness, especially, say, with dopamine D2 receptors that downregulate when you take lots of, lots of drugs. They also downregulate in cases of um, extreme of obesity on palatable foods in, in many cases. You can induce it by putting rats on a really high-calorie um, cafeteria diet with donuts and ice cream and cottage you know, cream cheese and such, down-regulation and dopamine D2 receptors in the nucleus accumbens and striatum. And then if you stop that, the drugs or the diet, the, the high-fat diet, um, there is some pushback of the receptors, but they may not come back all the way, at least not in the weeks to one or two months that most studies have followed. So this is a source of some debate in the field. Are you familiar with Selen Atasoy's work? Um, tell me. I think that she works somewhat closely with uh, your colleague Kringlebach. Morgan Kringlebach. Mm -hmm. And her work is on connectome harmonics. There hasn't been much interlocution between the two of you? Um, there's a lot. Morgan Kringlebach is, is doing a lot on connectome and uh, sort of dynamic mapping of networks in the brain that can change from moment to moment. So yes, that is absolutely a big theme. It's, it's tricky to interpret. I mean, it's clear that these networks are alive and changing um, and that some kinds of clinical conditions can sort of bias them in particular directions. How to interpret the changes is still tricky. How can uh, functional localization be aided by, say, connectome harmonics? Well, um, it's, it's a good question and a very fundamental issue. Uh, neuroscience for 100 of years, 100 years has been guided by the localization of function doctrine, you know, that if some parts of the brain do some things particularly well, it can lead us, it can be overemphasized to the point where we think that the function is contained in that spot, which is almost always a mistake, um, even if some spots are especially crucial for a function. So connectomes, connectonomics can kind of make us more alive to the network properties of functions. How might it be helpful to reconceptualize valence generators, you know, these hotspots, things like it, as harmonic tuning knobs? Well, conceivably, I mean, there, there is a sense in which these hedonic hotspots, they're responding to levels of stimulation within them at this moment. And if we inject opioids or endocannabinoids into a hedonic hotspot, we're sort of turning up the knob, tuning it by, by giving it high levels of stimulation and vice versa if we lower that. So it's, it's very plausible that yes, um, in a sense, they're adjusting each other. 
They're not so much generating a function, perhaps many of them, as, as modulating each other, tuning each other, and that's what levels of stimulation are doing. So it's, it's a plausible metaphor, um, very reasonable. You've explained many functional localization discrepancies with concepts like modes versus modules and hotspots versus keyboards. How can these discrepancies alternatively be explained using the tuning knob analogy? Well, um, hotspots and modules sort of tie, buy into the localization of function notion. It's the notion that well, hedonic hotspot, it's the only spot in the nucleus accumbens where if we stimulate it with opioids, we can enhance liking. The rest of the nucleus accumbens just doesn't. So in a sense, that is a localization of function. That's what makes the hotspot hot, having that capability. Um, modes, on the other hand, is sort of a, a challenging idea which comes out of the observation that even the hedonic hotspot sometimes doesn't generate liking at all. If we were to put dopamine into it, for example, we wouldn't get any enhancement of liking, we get only enhancement of wanting. Um, so the hedonic hotspot has multiple modes of operation. Um, it may even be possible to flip some spots from wanting into fear and from fear into wantings. Um, it's a kind of an open question when we do that, are different neurons within the spot, some mediating wanting, some mediating fear, some mediating liking, or are some of the neurons actually doing all of these things, but in different, in different modes, with different perhaps firing patterns, or embedded in larger different circuits in the rest of the brain, sort of as, as building blocks, but it's the rest of the brain that's different, it's using this one shared common building block. Um, if that's the case, then the same thing in the brain is really doing very different things at different moments, and the notion of modes is trying to understand that. The tuning, the tuning knob notion could fit conceivably in either of these frameworks, in both of these frameworks, um, because it's sort of saying, well, it's the level of stimulation that might be altering the mode, you know, so it's the turning the knob that might be altering the node, conceivably, or it's the level of stimulation um, that's sort of helping to put us into a particular module, making the hotspot hot. Um, it's, it's, so they're not mutually exclusive, but they, they could be conceivably fit together. The modes and modules, on the other hand, that's somewhat mutually exclusive uh, as alternatives for a particular neuron or a particular site. Right, because on one hand, we don't totally throw out the idea that you know, this part of the brain does something specific, like the sensory motor cortex with the homunculus, right? That, that one is pretty clear cut, right? It's like this part of the brain does X. The fusiform gyrus controls your ability to, you know, recognize faces. But to some degree, it, it, you know, given the fact that the same area of the brain can do the opposite thing, um, it kind of fits with the idea that it, it could literally just be like a, a volume knob where you go all the way to the left and you've got dysphoria and you go all the way to the right and you've got euphoria. Yeah, no, conceivably. No, that's right. Volume and volume could correspond to sort of level of chemical stimulation or level of firing. On the other hand, then there's other kinds of mode-like states that might not be so um, quantity like scalar from just low to high, but have to do with the pattern of firing or with particular other sort of qualitative differences. Um, in any case, 
I think we'd have to say it's clear localization of function exists, absolutely. Somatotopic maps exist. Um, neurons, different sites do different things, absolutely. The real question is that if we boil down the localization of function notion to its essence, as many neuroscientists do today, we get to the point where we think one neuron has its function and it can be counted on to do that function. We've this particular neuron expressing this particular neurotransmitter in this particular place, it has a dedicated function. This is a very tempting notion, especially with the new techniques, say, of selectively optogenetically or chemogenetically activating just one type of neuron in one site. We see it does something. We want to believe that's the thing, that's the function that it does. The problem is, is that um, that might be an overassumption, and that it's conceivable that that same neuron will do something else, a very different function, maybe even an opposite dif different function in a different mode. And so far, we haven't often even asked the question. We've sort of stopped as soon as we identify a function and say, well, that's this neuron's function, and publish that and run with that. But we may be blinding ourselves to the possibility that that neuron's going to have a different function especially if we fail to ask it by you know, putting it into different situations and, and finding out. So when I have argued for the notion of modes, potential modes, I'm really asking fellow neuroscientists to sort of um, just be a little bit more skeptical and probe a putative neuron for its putative function a little bit more thoroughly because I think there is some evidence to say at least a good many neurons may well change their functions in different, different mode states. Yeah, there's a tension between wanting to make linear progress and be able to identify important neurons in different processes and operating with a greater epistemic awareness of the problem and not being closed off to other paradigms that might express it better. But yeah, it's, it's just harder to think of a neuron doing multiple things, opposite things even. <laughs> so I can, I can kind of see why everybody wants to stay in the current mode, no pun intended. <laughs> no, absolutely, absolutely. There are temptations in science to think in certain ways, and we all understand that. Um, at the same time, we don't want to dedicate a decade to you know, being wrong if, if there's an opportunity to think a little harder and maybe be more right. Has serotonin been important in any of your studies of liking? Well, serotonin is very intriguing. I mean, of course, um, since m many of the antidepressants, the famous antidepressants act by um, on serotonin, the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, um, they really ought to be. A frustration in affective neuroscience is that if we manipulate serotonin, say, in the nucleus accumbens, where it is, uh, and then other places, there aren't really strong affective consequences. And the puzzle, even for the antidepressants, you know, has been has always been um, they they start altering serotonin within hours to days, but the antidepressant effects may take weeks or longer sometimes to kick in. And what's going on there? Is it really the serotonin that's mediating the antidepressant effect, or is it some other change downstream that's not serotonin at all? And there's with ketamine and um, you know, people looking at glutamate interactions now. There's an entirely also different different approaches to this. So I think we all agree that serotonin is important, um, but it's a frustrating one to pin down in terms of a particular affective function. It needs we need more on serotonin. Do you think a lot of the impetus in drug development of serotonin reuptake inhibitors and the like is driven by this political rather than scientific need? to 
um, stay away from more sophisticated valence therapies because they're potentially addictive or have mind-altering properties. Of course, the, the reason that it is politically safer is because um, it's the same reason why serotonin is frustrating. Uh, animals will not self-administer serotonin. They will administer drugs that stimulate their dopamine system. They will administer drugs that stimulate their opioids, mu receptor system, endocannabinoid system. Yes, all these drugs are self-administered. Serotonin isn't. Um, so that suggests it's not all that powerful and affective reward for the animals, but also it suggests to drug companies and to government that, yes, drugs that stimulate serotonin are safer. Um, they're not going to lead people into addiction nearly as, as likely as a amphetamine or, or similar drug or opioid. So it, all, it, it is all tied together, both the scientific frustration and the um, safety and, and political um, acceptability of the drug as a medication. How might drug manufacturers go about making better valence enhancers? Oh, well, you know, that's, we'd all love to know the answer to that. <laughs> um, the drug manufacturers are certainly trying to find uh, drugs that would, say, produce analgesia through opioid receptors, yet not be reinforcing and not be self-administered. That would be a great boon if that could be achieved. Um, there's hopes. Um, there's other routes to tackle as well. And I know as a, a scientist, you're always wanting to be careful and not go beyond um, what the empirical evidence is, is giving you. But uh, yeah, if, if you can speculate about, you know, there's a section at the end of all research papers, future work, right, which is based on intuition and, you know, somewhat on empirical results, but it's, it's much more... Um, you know, creative. So if you had to, you know, if somebody, if, if the great Autark gave you a, b a billion dollars to go and develop this, I mean, where would you start? Oh, well, there are massively important questions. Um, the nature of addictive compulsion is one. Um, the, the extent to which addiction is a, is a normal choice versus a, a brain disease compulsion is a major issue and what is the nature of, compuls of that compulsion if it is a, uh, produced by a, a kind of brain sensitization or another change in the brain. This is a, a major, major question. Um, the nature of desire is a major question. One of the questions that my lab is pursuing now is um, what is it that causes us to, we can control the, the level of wanting. There's lots of brain manipulations now that can drive it away or enhance it. We can control the level of wanting. But what is it that controls the target of wanting? In your normal life, you want food right now, but water later, and then something else and something else. In addiction, the focus of wanting becomes sort of hard and fast and stuck on a particular thing while others go down. Um, a phenomenon in our lab that we're discovering right now is a way to control the target of wanting, but also um, something that can decouple wanting so much from the liking that we can even create wants for what hurts you. We think we can create that in the lab, sort of compulsive want, almost an addictive want for some event that only delivers pain and no pleasure. Um, this, if it's true, is sort of getting at the 
essence of the brain's wanting system, its potential independence from um, pleasure, even though it evolved to go along with pleasures, and that's naturally what we would usually want it to do. But it can decouple from pleasure, so it's kind of giving us an essence of the addiction compulsion, but also it could be relative to other things like self-harming um, in you know, clinical conditions where pain is pursued is sometimes as a motivated target. Um, so that, that's a possibility. There's, there's sort of larger moral and, and ethical issues. People have sometimes asked us, well, what in the brain is responsible for happiness? And in a sense, that kind of hinges on what is your theory of happiness. Um, a, a traditional Western theory, going back to Aristotle, has been that it's composed of hedonia and eudaimonia, that is sort of pleasure in life and meaning in life. Um, we have not much to say about meaning in life, but we may have the brain mechanisms of pleasure in life. And one way of viewing a happiness would be to sort of up the pleasure um, and then down, you know, reduce the um, displeasure. You know, you know, meeting a couple of years ago, a few years ago with the Dalai Lama in sort of in the Buddhist tradition, one notion was, well, you'd really want to eliminate wanting, maybe have ha happiness as a form of not so much pleasure, because for them, pleasure is, is you're chasing the wanting, is chasing the pleasure, but sort of an elimination of the want could be part of the recipe for pleasure. On the other hand, there's a psychology, uh, including the incentive salient psychology, that says, well, a certain moderate amount of wanting gives zest to life. If you strip away dopamine wanting, if you give people antipsychotic drugs that block wanting, life drains, in a sense, of its ability to invigorate and attract, and that's not a recipe to happiness. So whether you want to eliminate wanting or actually have a more optimal level of wanting, you know, these are kinds of issues to, to maximize happiness. Um, so there's all kinds of issues that are related to the basic research. They're certainly much larger than the basic research, but they're, they're issues that we are invited to think about, and sometimes we have something to say about them. Yeah, and you wrote a chapter in the Nobelist Dan Kahneman's book on well-being, and you know, there's some clickbait-type uh, titles, articles on the internet saying that Dan Kahneman gives up on happiness because people don't want to be happy, they want to be successful. And uh, instead of spending time with people they like, which in his words causes quote-unquote objective happiness, they pursue status. Uh, in a sense, they aggressively stimulate their dopaminergic wanting systems, but they don't actually experience happiness for it. Um, what are the parallels between how we pursue status and the ways rodents self-administer dopamine? Well, um, it, it's very clear that too much wanting is a recipe for great unhappiness. You know, and addiction would be sort of the, the prototype. But the pursuits of, of status are, are mesolimbic triggers in us, just like the cues for drugs and the cues for foods are mesolimbic triggers in both us and in rats. So there is a sense in, in which um, that kind of chasing wants, excessive wants, excessive chasing of wants, this is a recipe for unhappiness. It can decouple from liking. It can decouple from meaningfulness in life. So absolutely, um, and it's very clear from... Daniel Kahneman's work and a lot of social psychology work that people make comparisons between themselves and other people. And if you're making comparisons between yourself and someone who has more status or more money or more success, that's also a recipe for unhappiness. Um, these, these are certainly legitimate and 
it would be good to internalize them and to try not to make those comparisons and perhaps not to chase so much for status. That could be a recipe for happiness. Yeah. I want to ask you kind of what your interpretation of both the Dalai Lama and Donna, Dan Kahneman's views are on this, because I, I haven't been able to get a, a clear answer. I mean, Kahneman was saying that early in his work, all he thought that mattered was moment by moment, you know, hedonia. Uh, that, you know, that is what happiness is. That's what he terms ob objective happiness. Um, but this subjective well-being stuff, this uh, eudaimonia, um, you know, I, I, he didn't. He doesn't understand intuitively why other people think the eudaimonia stuff is is important. Um, has his view? Like, what do you think his views are on this? Do you just think he thinks that everybody else is kind of deluded about <laughs> what happiness is, and that it's not about subjective well-being, or has he come around to the notion that? All right, maybe a little eudaimonia, but, but why, if he, if he has come to this conclusion, right. what's changed? Well, well, I don't think that he would reject eudaimonia and meaningfulness in life as an important goal to strive for, even a component of happiness. Um, on the other hand, his work in the 1990s and early 2000s on sort of momentary well-being, hedonics in the moment, your subjective well-being rated moment to moment, both in your choices and your sin, your satisfaction in this moment. That's very important and and very, very useful. If you actually look at the studies on human happiness, Ed, Ed Diener, for example, was a pioneer at this on this in the University of Illinois, and he's a co-author on that book with Daniel Kahneman, um, a co-editor. His studies have shown that people actually give similar ratings on their hedonic dimensions and their eudaimonic dimensions. Um, if you ask people on a one to 10 scale how happy they are or how meaningful their life is, with five being sort of a neutral point, anything below five being negative, anything above five being positive, most people are above five, most people are above seven. And if they are below, they tend to give, wherever they are, they tend to give similar answers to the hedonic rating, how pleasant is life, and to the eudaimonic rating, how meaningful and how satisfied in the meaning of your life um, are you in your social social interactions, your family, your, your accomplishments. Now, all of that, that eudaimonia, that's different from chasing status, I think. So when, when he, if he says that chasing status is a recipe for unhappiness, he's not saying that eudaimonia is a recipe for unhappiness. These are things that would lead us to be dissatisfied in life. He's really saying um, that's, that's separate. And it's an incorrect notion of eudaimonia that the way you live the good life is by being more successful rel relative to your peers, and it's more about doing something that you find purpose in. Exactly. There were, there were marvelous things about Daniel Kahneman's framework on the subjective well-being. So, for example, one thing that he could do that's very tricky for other frameworks to do is a kind of dissociation of wanting and liking. In, in many people's experience, if we say, well, you know, I want things, but then I turn out not to like them. So that's sort of a dissociation between wanting and liking. And it is temporarily, but it's not psychologically. Um, because when we want something, it's because we expect that we're going to like it. So our prediction of liking is cohering absolutely with our wanting for that. Our wanting is driven by the prediction. It's just that our, our prediction is wrong sometimes. Um, 
we either we haven't experienced it, we imagine the status is going to make us happy, and we fi finally get to that status, and we find it doesn't make us happy, so we were wrong in our theory of status, or we're misremembering something that we had before and we thought would make us happy. So th the prediction is wrong. Um, it turns out, I believe, in our, in our animal experiments and brain experiments, that it's possible to go a step further, and Daniel Kahneman's framework allows us to take to go a step further, because he distinguishes not only between experience utility of how much we like it in the moment and the predicted utility, but also between decision utility and the predicted utility. It's possible, I think, sometimes um, for us f to predict accurately that we won't like it and yet still want it. So to have a low predicted utility, yet high deci decision utility in his framework. This might actually happen, say, if you encounter an addict who wants to give it up, to give the drug up, and who says to you, well, you know, I know it ruins my life, and I don't even like this drug that much anymore when I take it. I know I don't like it. I can predict I'm not going to get that much pleasure from it. Um, and yet, sometimes I want to take it so badly, and I don't even understand myself why I want that. This is a kind of dissociation of predicted utility where they're accurately predicting it's not going to be so good and it will destroy their life um, from decision utility, which is a kind of craving, even though they're not in withdrawal because they haven't taken the drug for a long time. This may happen in the real world. Incentive sensitization gives us a way of understanding it, but the Kahneman framework also gives us a way of describing it, talking about it that, that can be useful. So um, there's a lot of value in this framework, I think. Yeah, I mean, intuitively, I'm oriented more to the side of, no, it's moment-to-moment -moment pleasure that matters. And I don't mean that in a sort of myopic, hedonistic sense, you know. I wouldn't be talking to you. I would be out uh, at a rave. Or... Yeah, no, no, fair enough. Fair enough. And I think he would agree with you that it's the moment-to-moment -moment happiness that is the most important form of all of those utilities, that experience utility in the moment. Getting back to the Dalai Lama, the, I guess what they're really focusing on is that people have, in concordance with what they think is going to make them happy and what actually does make them happy. Yes, I think so, although I would add that another part of that, that position is that our desire for this happiness itself can be part of the cause of unhappiness, that the desires um, are a problem in life that everyone must deal with. Um, they become a particular problem in cases like addiction, uh, but they are a problem even in their ordinary form um, that, that must be dealt with and that there are practices for trying to deal with that. It's not a particularly Western thought, but uh, that's how I understand what they say. Right, and I don't know how to square this with the idea that we should be aggressively pursuing the type of scientific work that you're doing to understand these mechanisms so that we can ultimately do what Siddhartha said, which is, you know, abolish suffering. Well, I think we all agree that desires can cause suffering if they become too extreme. Um, whether one would want to abolish all desires, even moderate desires, you know, that, that becomes the more difficult question. We don't have to even go there. Um, but since we all agree that extreme desires are a problem in life, then understanding the nature of desire, to the extent our kinds of studies can give you more insights into the nature of desire, partly the brain mechanisms, but also the psychological nature of desire, um, then it, perhaps it gives us a little bit something more to work with. 
I mean, might we just be able to pump up the valence so high that it doesn't matter how high the wanting is? Like, for instance, if these are orthogonal systems and I feel blissed all the time, but I have hyper-motivation, then I just don't lay there and they've got plenty of motivation to, to get up and do productive things. Well, a prescription for happiness might well be amp up your hedonic liking in life and uh, keep a lid on the desire wanting. Um, the brain hasn't evolved to be cooperative in that regard, so uh, that's, that's part of the problem. If you turn on the liking systems, you're going to kick in the wanting system as well. Um, we, have, we live in intense desires. We live with more intense desires than we live with intense pleasures. That's the way the brain's built to be. Um, there are reasons in its structure that help us see why that is, and we have to cope with the brain and the mind as they actually are. I'm imagining a futuristic scenario where human beings are, for instance, genetically engineered to have a very high hedonic set point coupled with a very high motivational set point. But in the current context, is there something practical you can do to have a higher hedonic set point while keeping that motivational set point at a, at a healthy balance? Oh. Well, I think there might be ways, the practical ways, but they don't come from our kinds of experiments. You know, they could come from humanists and social psychologists who sort of look. So gratitude, expressing gratitude in life is a good exercise, it turns out. Um, not making comparisons with the status person above you, constantly you know, refraining from that is a, is a good practice. Taking a lot of little steps like this probably are good things to do to maximize liking in life. Are they magic bullets? Well, they help. Well, this is great. I've, I've learned a lot, and um, you answered my questions beautifully. So I, I think this is a great interview, and I'm really excited to, to post it. it it's going to take a while because <laughs> I have a backlog of editing, but I, I really appreciate you taking your time to, to talk. Well, I've enjoyed it, Jake, and good luck with the podcast and the project. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear your feedback and tell us what you want to hear more of. Help us put out more episodes like this by making a donation to the show, or if you're interested in volunteering, we have positions open in editing, topic research, and promotion. Write to host at invinciblewellbeing.com.